Listener Production. Hello. Hello. <sighs> you recording? Mm-hmm. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, guess that means I've got to talk. I was listening back to an episode that we recorded a little while ago, and I usually don't listen back to them when they're like live on the podcast mm. apps. And when it started with me, uh, <laughs> I'm getting comfortable with people commenting my name on Instagram, but I don't know if I'm comfortable with hearing myself just yet. Okay, right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll warm up to that again at yep. some point. Hello, Lindsay. Hello, Jacob. Welcome back. You are here today with some lovely fresh ink I you acquired am, over the weekend. Yes, I have added a little bit more to my street cred over the weekend. <laughs> Got a couple of more tattoos, one on my inner arm and one on my outer calf. They're very unique, very feel, artistic. Thank you. I feel very cool. Ah, you, <laughs> you're known as the coolest kitten around these parts. Um, when did you discover them? When did you decide you wanted to have them on your body? And how long was the delay until you actually went for it and made this permanent life-altering decision? <laughs> I first saw the designs. They're based on two pieces of art that I really liked. I saw one of them probably years and years ago and mm-hmm. one earlier this year at the White Rabbit Gallery in Sydney. So they've been in my mind for like, a couple of years to a couple of months. Uh-huh. And I probably pulled the trigger on committing to getting these in the last maybe like one or two months. Okay. All right. That's an uncomfortably tight turnaround for my standards. That's why I've remained a clean skin mm-hmm. because I know that I would change my mind. Anytime I have had an impulse to get a tattoo in my life, I'm really glad that I've decided not to because within about 12 months, I'm completely over the idea. Uh, we missed the emu war anniversary last week, but thank you to everyone who pointed it out to us. Um, yes, it has been 90 years since Australia declared war on the dreaded emu. November 2nd is the anniversary. We have decided we're instead going to do something to commemorate the end of the war, December 10th, when peace was declared and everything was well in the nation and let's face it, Australia lost the war. Um, so that's something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. We should plan some sort of festivities to celebrate that. We'll do something. Okay. Emu Pour one out for the emus. Day. Yeah. Um, and so this episode, this week, this is all about the Yongala shipwreck, Australia's Titanic, mm-hmm. as some people refer to it, which is a little bit generous, as you'll see. Um, before we jump in, I just wanted to tell you about a couple of extra shipwrecks mm-hmm. that Carlo sent me some information on. Carlo, of course, our fantastic guest. Big fan of week. ships, Carlo is. Loves a shipwreck. Um, he told me about the SS Waratah. In 1909, it was only this ship's second voyage. It had 211 passengers on board, disappeared, <gasps> never been found. They have no idea where it is. They think probably somewhere in the Indian Ocean, but I'm sure... <gasps> Oh, that's really creepy. I know you do a lot of ocean swimming and diving Mm. and just the thought that you could be dying, like now uh, 1911, 1901, whenever it was, Mm. those bodies are long gone now. But just to think that all of those bodies are out there somewhere, Mm -hmm. that's very creepy. Yeah. Um, This is even creepier though. The SS Beechimo, Mm -hmm. 1931, it got stuck in some ice in the Arctic Circle. Couldn't move, um, so the crew had to leave the ship and go get help. When they came back, the ice had melted, the boat had floated away, and they were like, 
well, we've lost the boat. Uh-oh. And they went out trying to find it, couldn't find it anywhere, assumed it must have just sunk. Oh, well, what a tragedy. But then over the course of the next 38 years, people kept spotting it floating around the Pacific Ocean. Sometimes people even boarded it and salvaged <gasps> stuff so they could prove, I did see the boat, I did go on board, here, touch this. And then the last time it was seen was 1969. So, again, they think it probably sunk, but who knows? There are claims every now and then that haven't been verified, that there was a mysterious mm. ship off on the horizon. Could that possibly be the SS Bechimo? All right, let's go ahead and get into the story of the Ongala with Carly Richo. Enjoy. Oh, and if any of you have any Yongala-based stories, mm. please send them through to us. Um Quickest way to get it to me is at Jacob William Stanley on Instagram. Yongala stories or also merchandise that you, probably not you, but somebody long, long ago in your family may have pilfered mm-hmm. from the wreck as well. Yes, we want to hear. Enjoy. Cool. Happy with that? Yeah. <laughs> in three, two, <laughs> and we're live. <laughs> Hello, Gistners. Welcome back to Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which ordinarily Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to discuss at a dinner party. And as you are all well aware, Rosie's taking a little bit of a break to take care of her health. And while she's away, we've got some extra special guest hosts who've been coming on board. And this week, we are thrilled to welcome Mr. Carlo Ritchie. Carly, uh, Carly... Carly, welcome to Just the Gist. <laughs> it's great to be here, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> One of my best friend's names is Carly, and I will probably continue to do that for the rest of the episode. <laughs> I will fun. warn you now. Thank you so much for coming on board. I hope you are flattered to know that a few of your fans thought it would be a treat for us to have you on the show. And um, they sent us some DMs and Lindsay and I stalked you a little bit <laughs> and we agreed that you would indeed be a treat to have on the show and here you are. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jacob. Thank you so much for having me in. And thank you for those fans for uh, for recommending me. I am flattered. Good. Glad to hear it. Um, so let's kick things off with you giving us just the gist of who you are and what you do, please. Sure. So I'm a mostly an improviser, but I'm also um, a stand-up comedian and writer. Mm-hmm. I, I don't tend to go and go out out and out and say that I'm a stand-up comedian because almost all of my material is exclusively about bisexuality and the Titanic of all of my shows. <laughs> that's that's the two subjects that I cover. So I think I'm more of a lecturer in that way. You know? <laughs> um, and then uh, I write for Play School, which is um, has been a recent thing in my life the last year or so, and that's just been a dream job. Uh-huh. But yes, mostly I'm an improviser. I'm part of a duo called the Bear Pack. Um, uh-huh. And we're on a, we're starting a tour next week in London. Would you believe? Completely improvised. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That terrifies me. Absolutely <laughs> terrifies me. What What's that experience like for you? Um, I mean, it's it's good for me. I've I've, I've done it for a long time, so it's I kind of have a um, uh, an affinity with it. In fact, scripted stuff tends to make me more anxious and nervous now, oh. just because I'm so used to being able to just self-direct as it were Mm -hmm. and then you start getting into a script you get into your own mind but yeah it's just a lot of fun it's like the person I do it with Steen Raskopoulos he and I have known each other for a very long time and Mm -hmm. it's just like um, you know we're just playing around it's like being kids you know Mm -hmm. making up a story together on stage Mm -hmm. Um, 
yes, it's great fun. It's great fun. You mentioned that you do um, stand-up slash lectures based on the Titanic. You <laughs> yes. are a Titanic nerd. And I would love for you to tell our listeners about the podcast series that you released recently because I think they would all absolutely love to tune into it. Oh, you're too kind, Jacob. But yeah, so it's it's called Did Titanic Sink? Mm-hmm. Um, we put it forward under that title to um, Radio New Zealand who were doing a nationwide call-out in New Zealand mm-hmm. for um, youth-focused comedy podcasts mm-hmm. that they really wanted to target an audience. And so we pitched them an Australian guy telling them about the Titanic, a naval disaster from 100 years ago. We're like, what do the youth love more? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it's, it's basically a podcast examining the possibility that maybe Titanic didn't sink but instead mm-hmm. a different ship sank in its place. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's an interesting conspiracy theory. I've been aware of it for a number of years. And, yeah, it's quite fun to dig into mm. this possibility that, yeah, maybe, maybe Titanic didn't sink. Yeah. Um, it's funny because we did an episode back in 2020 where Rosie, who is a massive Titanic geek, um, served us just the gist of what happened um, on that fateful day. And just as a bit of a throwaway, she said there is this conspiracy theory that it wasn't actually the Titanic that sank and the whole thing was an insurance fraud scam mm-hmm. run by the White Star company, whatever they are. Yeah, the um, lines. And I never bothered to look into that because it seemed like oh, there was no real point. In the course of six episodes, I have to tell you, I was <laughs> absolutely convinced of this theory. And I won't give anything away, um, but I will just say that you kind of broke my heart towards the end there, Carly. <laughs> um with the revelation that comes at the very end. I'm getting a lot of mail about the the big revelation in episode six. Mm-hmm. I think I've broken a lot of people's hearts. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, consider me one of those hearts that was <laughs> sort of shattered. But yeah, really recommend listeners go and get amongst it. Um, it is fascinating. And then um, in a moment we'll circle back to how... Uh, the Titanic influenced the selection of this week's story. But before we do, let's play Two Truths and a Lie. So, Carlo, you've come prepared with three statements about yourself and Lindsay and I are going to pick which one of them is the falsehood. Okay, so I speak a language that has less than 20 speakers. I'm the backgammon champion of the ACT Mm -hmm. and I did a private gig for Natalie Portman. Oh... Ah. All right, so Natalie Portman was in Australia for a while filming the Star Wars prequels like 20-ish years ago. (laughs) Um, What do you reckon, Lindsay? I am going to lean towards backgammon champion of ACT is true because I was looking at Instagram before this and you're on Letters and Numbers on Monday night, which I think suggests you're very smart. I think that the language one might, I'm going to say that's true because we were talking before we started recording that you spent some time living in Poland, Mm. which suggests that you have skills in language learning. And I'm going to say Natalie Portman is the lie. I wonder if maybe you have performed to someone of that calibre Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it was just a different celebrity. Did a little switcheroo. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we have to pick something different. I'm going to say that you aspire to become the backgammon champion of the ACT, but you're not quite there yet, and that is the fib. 
um, I'll say yes to Natalie Portman and yes to the language, which <laughs> I really hope is true. <laughs> well, it's uh, you picked it, Jacob. It's uh, I, Damn it. I, I don't even. <laughs> I, I don't even really know the. Yeah, I don't even really know the rules of backgammon. <laughs> um, yes, no, that is that's the fib. That's uh-huh. the one. Okay, so let's start with Natalie. Unpack that for us. Okay, so uh, twenty twenty one, we performed Bear Pack, and a couple of days before, we got a message from a friend of ours saying, "Hey, I know this is going to sound crazy, but could we get eight tickets for?" Natalie Portman and her family mm. to come and watch with Tessa Thompson uh-huh. to see the Bear Pack. Mm. And we were stoked with it. They came along and they watched a Bear Pack show. It was a really great time. Mm. And then a couple of weeks later, I got this phone call and was asked to come and perform for her 40th birthday to do this private performance. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. wow. And so I... Um, yeah, it was just this very surreal time in my life. I um, I was – they were basically putting on like a, a, a family birthday show. Yeah. And they had sort of all their family members and friends, including like Sasha Baron Cohen and stuff, oh. doing this uh, this birthday event. And and uh, yeah, I, I got up and did a, a an improv set. And, um, so not your Titanic or bisexual stuff? No, none of that. Uh-huh. No, no, just pure improv uh-huh. straight to the main vein. Um, for the 14 guests uh-huh. of this party. How did she find out about you? Um, there, we had a good, uh, we have two very good friends, dear friends, and they, one of them had been working on a film with her husband mm-hmm. um, and they were at a dinner and she was saying, oh, how she, she really missed the improv scene of LA. Mm. And they said, oh, well, our friends are doing a show at the, um, the comedy festival. You should go and check it out. And so that's, that was the impetus for it all kind of coming together. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was a very surreal time. What a great memory. Um, and how did the show go down? Was it well received? Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was really fun. It was a, um, it, it was, yeah, it was a really, really good show. I had the most surreal thing happen to me afterwards, which was like Sasha Baron Cohen came up to me and was like, man, I just, I really love your characters. I really love your characters. And I was like, <laughs> oh. I was like thanks, Sasha Baron Cohen. You know? And, like, and someone wow. said, oh, you should put that on a poster. And I was like, yeah, but people will think that's a joke. Yeah. You know? like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen likes my characters. You know, that reads as a, uh, it reads as a joke on paper. So that was a very weird thing. Um, a weird thing to me, and then, uh, but yeah, it went, it went, it went really well. It was Terrific. a fun, fun old time. So great! Oh, I hope you get an opportunity like that again in the future. <laughs> well, I, it was all thanks to COVID because they were all like over here doing Thor, and you know, and there was just all of these, it. and yeah. they'd all decided to move because it was there wasn't lockdowns and things. The US was all spiraling out of out of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, hopefully so, another global pandemic brings <laughs> all the uh, the glitterati back. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, okay, and now tell us, what is this language with only 20 speakers? Oh, yes, it's called Vimishurus. It's a minority language from the south of Poland. Uh-huh. I, um, I became first interested in it because I had, as as you mentioned there, um, Lindsay, I think, mentioned that I had lived mm-hmm. in Poland previously. Mm-hmm. Um, what was interesting is this language was spoken in a little town very close to where I had been living a few years previous. And so that kind of tweaked my interest. And then the second thing was that, they are in uh, the middle of Poland, surrounded by an area that was always part of Poland, mm-hmm. Galicia, and yet they spoke a Germanic language and self-identified as being Scottish. Oh. And I was like, well, 
I've got to check this place out. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, when I lived with the t- in the town and I lived with some of the speakers and I would just every day go to one of their houses and drink their homemade vodka and learn the language and and then, yeah, I ended up, I learned it and I, I wrote a children's book in the language and I still write letters in that language to them because yeah. one of them's 100, she just turned 100. <gasps> and, yeah, we spoke with her on... Um, on Skype so that she could meet my daughter when my daughter was born. Uh-huh. And so she was 100 and she was like, and we said, isn't it crazy that, you know, you were born the same year they found Tutankhamun? <gasps> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't really think about that. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, and so, yeah, it's, it's been great. But, it, yeah, it, it's it's critically endangered. It's mm-hmm. only got a couple of speakers who are under the age of 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say a couple, there's two of them. And then there's a couple of kids that have been learning it and semi-speakers, but mostly they're all over the age of 85. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Got to keep it alive. Well, you know, you've got, what, one daughter, I believe? Yes, that's one. right, yeah, yeah. You'll have to have a whole brood and then yeah, pass exactly. the language on. A town's worth of Vimishura <laughs> speakers. Yeah. Mm, it's in your hands, buddy. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for that. No, my pleasure. Um, you are a very fascinating chap and I have a million <laughs> follow-up questions, but we should go ahead and jump into this week's story. I, I really would love to hear it, Jacob. I'm if so excited. Ready. Um, so I was very curious as soon as I started listening to Did Titanic Sink, I was curious to know whether you were aware of um, the shipwreck that they call Australia's Titanic, which is a bit of an exaggeration, kind of generous, um, (laughs) as you'll see, but we'll go with it. Um, And it turns out, no, you hadn't. It was yet to come across your desk. You hadn't heard of the SS Yongala, Australia's answer to the Titanic. I know, and and it's been so hard for me not to just deep dive into this ship in the mm-hmm. in the intervening week of knowing that we're going to talk about it because, mm-hmm. like, me and steamships, Jacob, we get along very well. <laughs> okay. Well, that was one of my questions. Are you singularly obsessed with the Titanic or with shipwrecks in general? I think Titanic's the top of the triangle mm-hmm. um, and then the rest of the steamships, they kind of go down. But I, I really just love particularly that era of steamships, like the, the you know, the 1910s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just, I really do love steamships, steam travel, uh-huh. the, that golden age of steamships. Wonderful time. Okay. Well, yes, that is exactly when this takes place between yes, 1903 yes, yes. to 1911. Now this, it's going to be a little bit like a two for the price of one episode, um, possibly if we've got time, even a three for the price of one episode. Mm-hmm. Because first off, I'm going to tell you about the Yongala itself. And then I'm going to tell you a bit about the murder mystery that happened on the wreck of the Ongala 90 years later. Um, Yeah, and this is something not a lot of people know about it. I only learnt about the Ongala last year when I went scuba diving on the wreck of the Ongala and that's when I did a bit of research into the background of it and found it completely fascinating but yes yeah, so few people know about it so it's not that it's it's in quite shallow water or yeah about like 35ish meters wow yeah you can go and dive on it it is absolutely spectacular by the end of this episode though I may have turned you off the idea of diving <laughs> on it altogether um, but it really really was a wonderful experience um, despite some of the things that were a little bit tricky on my dive, which if we have time, I might go into. Okay, four for the price of one. We'll see. <laughs> um, all right, so the SS Yongala, 
It was a luxury steamship, pretty plush, the sort of vessel that millionaires would cruise around the coast of Australia on. Um, Less than half the size of the Titanic, only about 115 metres long. Built in 1903 in England and then brought out to Australia, owned by a pretty successful Aussie shipping company that was based in Adelaide, uh, which is why the ship was called the Yongala, because there's a little town in South Australia called Yongala, Mm -hmm. which uh, translates to broad water in the local Indigenous language there. Mm She spent the next eight years sort of bouncing around the Australian coast all the way between from Perth round to Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and all the way up to Cairns and all the stopover ports in between. She completed 98 major voyages up until March of 1911 and when she disappeared, she was on the final leg of her 99th journey. She was on her way to Cairns in far north Queensland via Townsville, a very familiar route for the ship's captain. And when she got to Cairns, the plan was she was going to kick off celebrations for her 100th voyage. She was one cruise away from retirement. Exactly. Well, they weren't planning to retire, but they were planning <laughs> to have a big party. But um, yeah, just like what happened with Betty White earlier this year, um, tapped out at 99, didn't quite make it to the century. Mm. Were all of these voyages carrying passengers? Yes. Around Australia? For the most part, yeah. yeah I mean, and how, how many passengers did she carry? On this particular leg, when she left Mackay to then go to Cairns via Townsville, she was carrying 49 human passengers plus a um, prize-winning bull and a champion racehorse called Moonshine. (laughs) Um, And there were 73 crew members on board, which kind of gives you a little bit Mm. of an idea of the level of service that wealthy passengers received on the boat. Uh, So the ship left port from Mackay on the 23rd of March, pretty early on in the afternoon. And then just as she was reaching the horizon, the Mackay port operators got a message down the wire telling them to warn all the ships there was a really big tropical cyclone heading south and they needed to come back into the harbour and take shelter as soon as possible. So the port operators did everything they could to try to signal all the boats within sight. They waved signal flags and flashlights and sent up smoke signals, whatever they could possibly do to try to warn the boats. They sent out radio messages to the boats that had radios, but that was the minority of vessels at that mm-hmm. time. Every ship except the Ongala responded to the warnings and returned to port or found shelter in another safe haven somewhere nearby. The Yongala didn't have a radio system yet. Ironically, they'd ordered one and it was on its way to be installed when the ship was in Townsville as a special 100th trip anniversary present for the Yongala. So there was no radio contact and we'll never know whether the crew didn't see the warning signals or if they did see them and the captain just chose to ignore them, Mm. which Mm. quite a few people think is the most likely explanation. Even if they didn't see the signals, they would have noticed surely all the other boats suddenly turning around and going back to port and they would have wanted to investigate that. So, Yeah, um, and you would think the other ships would also probably have been 
signalling? Like, did, were there other ships that saw the Yongala at this point? Is yeah. that established? Yeah, 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 because Mackay was a fairly busy port and it was still within sight. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's speculative, but for a lot of people it does make sense that the captain just really, really wanted to finish the 99th voyage so then he'd be able to turn the ship around and get on with the 100th voyage. Plus, like I said, he was super familiar with the route, so he probably thought that his being one of the largest ships on the sea that day, he'd be able to um, withstand a storm, which, mm. I mean, I think... That rings a bell to do with the Titanic, right? A captain's arrogance leading to disaster. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a big trait in a lot of these, these you know, massive liner disasters mm. is that you have this certain degree of hubris that you build up. When you have this size of ship, mm. it's just really uncommon that ships that size sink. Mm. And even though, like, there are a lot of them that do sink over this period, um, it's still just usually chalked up to being like a complete mm. freak accident as yeah, yeah. opposed to being and they're like, ah, oh, you know, you'll you'll be fine. Yeah. Um I mean, no one's ever been able to prove that this is what went down, but a lot of folks think, yeah, okay, the captain probably saw the warnings and went, Yeah, yeah, thanks. We'll be fine mm-hmm. and kept on heading north towards Townsville. Now, of course, didn't show up in Townsville, but all the ships that were due to arrive over the next few days were delayed because they'd been taking shelter, hunkering down till the weather cleared. So no one was alarmed when the Ongala didn't arrive on schedule. But then two days passed with no sign of the ship and then a third day passed and that's when folks started to get a little concerned and then a bunch of stuff from the Ongala started washing up on shore. And the first few items that washed up were from the upper decks of the ship, like lounge chairs and whatnot, things that could have just been swept overboard in rough seas, Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily indicate the ship had been badly damaged or that it had sunk. But then stuff from the lower decks and the cargo hold started washing up, like pillows and mattresses and bags of turnips and bags of pumpkins And that suggested pretty strongly that the ship had run into some serious strife. So search and rescue boats were sent out to try to find the Ongala or her lifeboats somewhere out on the open ocean. This was the biggest ocean rescue mission launched in Australian history and they were searching more than 450 kilometres of coastline and they found absolutely nothing. Really? Even though they had this debris washing in? Mm Mm-hmm. No sign of life anywhere. Then a body was found washed up on shore, a body that was pretty easy for them to identify despite all the chunks that the sharks had bitten out of it over the previous few days. Do you want to have a guess at whose body washed up on shore? I think it's got to be the captain, right? Is it the captain's, is it the captain's body? It's not the captain's body. Lindsay, do you want to guess? Oh... I don't know, and there are like 50 really rich people and mm. 70 people serving them. Don't forget <gasps> about that racehorse oh, Moonshine. No, moonshine. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, it was Moonshine's body that washed up on shore, minus head and hoofs. Um, yeah, and that sparked some serious, serious concern. Um, more boats joined the search effort. They were certain now the Ongala had sunk, but they Mm. still had some hope that they'd find some survivors somewhere or, at the very least, retrieve some of the bodies. 
And a big reward was offered for anyone who could provide any helpful information which incentivized people to go out and join the search. Plus, families of the missing passengers were paying fishermen pretty handsomely to take their boats out and spend that's, days That's so searching. interesting, offering a reward for, like, maritime rescue. Mm. You know, like, that's... It doesn't feel like the thing that should be gun for hire, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the reward was particularly linked to finding where the wreck was so that they right. would be able to salvage some of the valuable stuff right. that was on board. Right. Yeah. But... um. Despite all that, no one found a thing. No lifeboats ever showed up. No other bodies ever washed ashore. And so all 122 people, the passengers and the crew members, they were just gone. And what happened to the Yongala in that storm was a mystery. And for years, sailors in the area told stories of seeing a ghost ship drifting out at sea, skulking around the Townsville area, seeking a safe haven. (laughs) And do you want to know who the newspapers started blaming for the loss of the Yongala? I'd love to know. Moonshine. Poor old (laughs) Moonshine. Or rather Moonshine's owners because um, boarding Moonshine at Mackay had caused a little bit of a delay and so the theory was... Had the ship been able to leave earlier, it would have made port earlier and may potentially have survived the storm. Also, they were letting Moonshine pilot the ship, which was just a (laughs) no-no. How do you just lose 120 people? I guess it's the 1900s, so Mm. maybe some of them washed up to, like, Papua New Guinea or, like, further away. And obviously there was no kind of communication back Mm. then where... PNG could just call us and be like, hey, are you missing like 120 people? <laughs> but how can these people just disappear? It turns out that it seems like the boat sank very, very, very quickly because okay. not one of the lifeboats was deployed. Um, and you'll hear a bit about what mm. happened to some of the bodies a little bit later on. So just a big mystery what had happened to the Yongala. Then in World War Two. 1943, there was a minesweeper boat out searching for underwater bombs that the Japanese Navy might have planted on the shipping route just south of Townsville. And their radar picked up something very big under the water that they figured could be a shipwreck, but it might also be a big school of fish. Whatever it was, it didn't look like it was an underwater mine and they were very busy fighting a war at the time. So no one was particularly concerned about a shipwreck from 30 years ago. That big thing under the water wasn't then investigated until four years later, 1947, and that quote-unquote investigation involved nothing more than just driving a boat over the location where the thing had been detected and using sound waves to confirm that it was still there. It was a solid object, definitely not a school of fish, probably a shipwreck, maybe the Ongala, and that was it nothing further. They didn't even dive down to investigate and try to confirm whether it was the Ongala. Another 11 years went by, so it's 1958 now, and a local fisherman named Bill decided he'd be the one to find out if the big solid mystery object really was the Ongala. And it took him a while. He was doing this in his spare time. He found where this big underwater object was and he dove down on the wreck a few times, collecting items he thought might be able to confirm that the ship was the Ongala. 
just being a helpful citizen, of course, certainly not scavenging any of the valuables that had gone missing (laughs) on the wreck. And one of the things he brought up on one of his diving trips was a safe. And that safe, predictably, was locked. And as soon as he could, Bill pried the safe open. And when he reported news of the find, old Bill said it was filled with nothing at all but black sludge. That's what I keep in my safes. (laughs) (laughs) Bill was wearing a ruby necklace at the time, but that was completely (laughs) unrelated, of course. Uh, Yeah, he said there was nothing of value in the safe. Uh Uh-huh, okay. Mm -hmm. But what was helpful was that the serial number on the safe was confirmed to be the very same safe with the very same serial number as the one that was installed on the Yongala. And so, finally, the final resting place of the ship and all 122 people on board was confirmed to be just off the coast of a little town called Air, you might have heard of, A-Y-R. Then came the adventurers and the looters. Sorry, can I ask before we move on, how far away is air from Mackay? Like how far did the ship get before it was wrecked? Yeah. About 300 kilometres. Okay. So So just shy of Townsville. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly where the boat hit the reef Mm -hmm. um, and started taking on water, but probably not too far away from there given that it seems like it sank pretty quickly. Super quickly. Yeah. And just to go back a step, so where they found this wreck was on the major shipping lane, right? So mm-hmm. it would appear that it didn't even try and go off the shipping lane to like to make it into a safe harbour or to pull in closer to land when this storm hit. Yeah, yeah. So it just it charging just went right down. on through. Far out. Yeah, probably if anything, trying to pick up speed to outpace yeah. the storm as quickly as they could. They now knew where the Yongala was, and that's when the adventurers and the looters descended on it. The coordinates of the wreck leaked, and over the next few decades, divers from around the world travelled to this tiny town of Air so they could hire charter boats and go out and explore the wreck, which is totally understandable. The wreck is stunningly beautiful. Everyone who goes diving there agrees it's one of the best dive sites in the world. It's sitting pretty much just on a blank canvas of sand. So it's like this oasis in the middle of an underwater desert. It's become its own ecosystem over the years. The whole boat is covered in hard and soft coral. There are millions of fish of all sorts of different species and sizes, turtles, sharks, rays. It's like really, really wonderful to behold and all contained on this 115-metre boat that's 35 metres below the surface. Understandable that people wanted to go and see it. The problem was a lot of those divers wanted to take home a souvenir. And for some folks that meant taking home something like a propeller blade or a porthole frame for other people, it meant taking home human remains. <gasps> no. Uh-huh. There were a hundred and something skeletons still inside the wreck. It was Far a mass gravesite. And there'd been rumours that people were taking bones from the wreck, but they were just sort of considered rumours by most people until they were confirmed in a pretty public way in the 1990s 
when an American woman who was going through customs on her way home to the States after a trip to Australia had her bag inspected and the customs officials who went through it asked her, ma'am, how and why do you have a human femur in your bag? And she admitted she'd helped herself to it when she went diving on the Yongala wreck as just a little piece of history to show the grandkids one day. Yeah, so, like, they couldn't ignore the rumours now that people were taking bones. How much does a femur weigh? (laughs) Good question. You know what, Lindsay, I'll Google that while Carlo (laughs) asks his question. I wanted to know, so by the 1990s, there were still intact skeletons on this ship. Like, they hadn't deteriorated in that time. That's crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. I will turn my attention back to that in a second. Lindsay, 290 grams is what you're looking at for the That's average not bad, actually. Um, adult. Yeah, it's a lot lighter femur. than I thought. Yeah, you mm. could have that in carry on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where she went wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, they'd already made the decision years ago that they were going to leave the skeletons on the boat, the ones that were still there. Obviously, They'd been sort of jumbled up. Scavengers had come along over the years and, you know, you can imagine the amount of crabs that had been helping themselves to Mm. the bits of flesh and, um, yeah, moving bits around. But, yeah, there were definitely quite a lot of human bones still in there and they decided that it would be a really sort of morbid jigsaw puzzle to try to um, work out what bones belong to whom and take them back to land and put them into proper burial sites. So they decided the most respectful thing to do would be just to leave them where mm-hmm. they were. Was it similar on Titanic or did the pressure destroy the bones? Yeah, by the time um, they actually found the wreck in the 1980s, there were no, there weren't even skeletal remains. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that's left of anyone on the Titanic is their shoes. So uh-huh. anytime you see shoes anywhere on the ocean floor within the wreck of the Titanic. Mm -hmm. That's generally where somebody's body was. Right. Um, Yeah, it's quite... Quite, there's some. There's a lot of them in particular parts of the ship and the moment you you find that out and then you start looking back at photographs, it's Mm. quite a harrowing experience. Yeah, totally. Um, So do you want to have a stab at what the government did when they intervened um, to make sure no one was going to be stealing any further femurs, tibias, bones of any sort? I reckon they took them out. Like they took all the that seems like the logical thing to do to mm-hmm. to do for me, which is if people are going to keep swiping these skeletons, mm-hmm. you can't keep somebody out there all the time. Mm-hmm. So the logical thing would be to take the skeletons, like exhume them and and bury them. Mm-hmm. But from the look on your face, Jacob, <laughs> that's you not what happened. Incorrect. They did the exact opposite. <laughs> they sent divers down to gather up all the bones and take them into the captain's quarters and then they welded the captain's quarters shut so no one can ever go in there and retrieve them. They decided they wanted to maintain the Ongala as a gravesite and, um, yeah, decided the best thing to do would be protect the bodies from the people. But, of course, now we can't get the log. <laughs> <laughs> if that still existed, I think that already someone had helped themselves to yeah, that because yeah, yeah. um, so many things had been looted over the years. Um, at this same point when the government um, moved all the bodies to the captain's room, um, they also went and took any items that they thought someone else might help themselves to so they could put them in the Maritime Museum 
in Townsville. Mm. Um, they also then made it illegal for anyone to enter the shipwreck. So if you even try to go inside the wreck of the Yongala, you'll be hit with a $20,000 fine. Uh-huh. Far out. Mm. How do they assess that? Well, you're only allowed to go and dive it with the certified operators, right, of which right, there are a couple right. that operate out of air and some that operate out of Townsville. You're not allowed mm. to go there on your own, technically. Um, and, yeah, they're very clear with you. You really, really, really don't want to go in there because we will report you. Um, yeah, 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 right. So can I ask a question, yep. Jacob? Obviously, you've covered all of these you know, adventurers and profiteers that are going down to the mm-hmm. wreck. Have they done now, like, any kind of archaeological dives or any, oh, yeah. like, naval dives to work out what happened? No, they have? Yeah, 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 but they still haven't quite been able to figure it out. So the wreck is sort of lying on its side mm-hmm. um, and they think that the side that's sort of buried is the side that's likely to have been gashed open Makes sense. on the night. Um, and, yeah, that would be the thing that... Um, would explain the fact that it sank so rapidly. Um, it probably also didn't have watertight bulkheads from the sounds of it if it sank that quickly. Yeah, and no, it doesn't. But yeah. I'm, I have no doubt you're about to go jump down a rabbit hole. And no, 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 no. Um, and you might be able to tell me some of the blind spots that I hadn't even thought about when I was researching this. Um, but, yeah, they've done heaps of, heaps of research. Right. For sure, Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is really funny, there are a lot of people around Queensland that are still eating off plates and cutlery that was retrieved from the wreck because, yeah, so many recreational divers were going down there and taking pretty much whatever they wanted over the course of years. That's kind of cool. Mm. In fact, we would love to hear from you. If you are a Jisna who has a Yongala relic, come forward anonymously, but please tell us if you have items in your home or in your family. So that is just the gist of how the Yongala was lost, how it was then found and how it went on to become protected. That's Australia's Titanic that hit a coral reef instead of an iceberg and is now a major tourist attraction. So we're now ready to move into talking about the alleged murder which by the sound of it, you don't remember from back in 2003, neither of you? No, it doesn't ring a bell. As I'm telling the story, let me know if it um, does spark anything for you. This was a very dark, dark turn of events. A newlywed couple from Alabama called Tina and Gabe Watson came all the way to Australia just to dive the Yongala for their honeymoon and only one of them made it home alive. Gabe had done about 50-something dives over the course of a fairly short period of time, whereas Tina had only done like 10 dives. So neither of them were particularly experienced and neither of them had ever done a dive in open water either. Mm. Regardless, they went ahead and booked a dive to the wreck of the Yongala because they'd heard such amazing things about it. They were warned it is a very, very challenging dive and I can tell you from experience it is a very challenging dive. What's so challenging about it? The currents, Mm. the depth um, are the main things that you are supposed to have quite advanced certification to be able to do it Um, and good levels of fitness and confidence in your own abilities. Just a little humble brag there, (laughs) Jack. Oh, let me be clear. 
I struggled. They warned me it was going to be difficult and I still found it incredibly, incredibly challenging. Like I said, I might tell you the story of what happened. So Gabe told the dive operators he was certified at a pretty high level. He told them he was a rescue diver. He exaggerated their capability and their experience as divers, insisted they didn't need a guide to go with them. So then they were allowed to dive as buddies for each other unassisted. All the divers on the boat got in the water, started descending down to the wreck. And soon after that, Gabe and Tina resurfaced because Gabe said his dive computer had been playing up. They got into the boat. He fixed his dive computer. They got back in the water And then pretty shortly after that, just a few minutes later, Gabe surfaced again alone and said Tina had panicked a few metres below the surface. She'd knocked his mask off his face, knocked his regulator out of his mouth, and while he was sorting himself out, she'd sunk down to the bottom. And then he'd freaked out and gone to go get help. Straight away, one of the tour operators leapt into action dove down to the bottom of the ocean to get her, found her lying there unconscious, brought her straight back up to the surface, did his best to resuscitate her, but despite his best efforts for nearly 40 minutes, Tina died. And because this was such an unusual and tragic death, it was investigated by the Queensland Coroner's Office, a process which took about five years. Wow. Wow. At that time, Gabe was back in Alabama, so he didn't testify at the inquest, but they reviewed all the evidence, the autopsy report, the witness statements, Gabe's dive computer, and the outcome of that inquest was that Gabe should be tried for murder. Far out. Uh Because it looked very much to the coroner like what had happened was that Gabe had turned Tina's air off while they were (gasps) under the water waited for her to drown, then turned the airflow back on, let her sink to the bottom, and then he'd surfaced and claimed she'd panicked and tried to make it seem like it was all an accident, which is a pretty audacious claim. They'd only been married for 11 days, and this seemed like a very elaborate and far-fetched way to try to dispose of someone that you just got married to. Yeah. But there was a decent amount of evidence that indicated this was possible, if not likely. So Gabe had insisted before they got in the water, he insisted that Tina wear far more weights than she or anyone for that matter needed for the dive. Mm -hmm. Other divers, when they were under the water, saw Gabe holding Tina in what they described as a bear hug just before he ditched her. And they thought that might have been the moment when he reached around her, turned her air off, held onto her until she drowned and then turned the air on and off he went. They thought maybe he'd orchestrated that my dive computer's broken thing as a way of allowing them to lag behind everyone else so Mm. that they could be alone and he could follow through with his plan. Um, Also, the fact that Gabe, he, he was a certified rescue diver. He hadn't been trained particularly well, but he was certified. Um, And that meant that at the very least he knew he should have taken her weight belt off if she was having difficulties and he could have pressed a button and inflated her buoyancy vest and she Mm. would have floated Mm. up to the surface. He didn't do any of that. He did the exact opposite of what a trained diver should do and just ditched her. 
And there were several other data points as well that made Gabe look very, very dodgy and his story kept changing every time he told it. The story didn't match up to the data that was on his um, dive computer. And then there were also a bunch of things that he said and did before and after the trip that made him look pretty shifty, like just before they left for Australia. Gabe asked Tina to make him the sole beneficiary of her life insurance policy. (laughs) (laughs) And he asked her to have the amount of the payout increased to the maximum. Interesting. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And then as soon as he got home from this tragic honeymoon, his top priority was filing for a $45,000 travel insurance claim for accidental death. So it seems like this might have been financially motivated, which is especially grim when you find out that the payout for the life insurance policy ended up only being $30,000 plus this $45,000 travel insurance claim, neither of which he ended up getting paid in the end. Because? Because they could tell that there was something (laughs) really, really, really fishy going on. Um, So after the... Inquest recommended that Gabe stand trial. He did his best to avoid being extradited to Australia, but then the following year, 2009, so this is six years after Tina died, he got on a plane voluntarily to come to Australia and plead guilty to manslaughter. He was willing to admit that he'd failed as a dive buddy and his failure had resulted in Tina's death, but maintained he was not guilty of murdering his wife. The court didn't have enough evidence to prove beyond... What's the word I'm looking for? Reasonable. Reasonable, thank you. Couldn't prove beyond reasonable doubt that it was premeditated murder. So he was found guilty on the charge of manslaughter and sentenced to 12 months in prison, which he served in an Australian jail. And then once he'd served his time, he was deported back to the US where the judicial system there was like, um, actually... We don't believe for a second that it was an accident. We think you killed your wife very much on purpose. So he was charged with Tina's murder again, which they were able to do because they decided, well, he'd planned this whole elaborate scheme while he was here in Alabama. That means that we then have jurisdiction to um, Mm. arrest him for it again. I guess he was, if if he was found guilty of that, then it would be, he'd be guilty of like insurance fraud as well, mm. That's right. which would be a US mm. jurisdiction. Yeah. But he was acquitted again, once more because of lack of evidence, couldn't prove beyond reasonable doubt that he'd done this intentionally. And so he was released. He went on to get remarried and opinion is still very much divided about whether mm. this was a tragic accident or a senseless murder. Um, One of the weird, weird things, though, is he got caught several times removing flowers and tributes from Tina's grave. Um, Yeah, they set up a bit of a sting operation because they noticed that things were constantly being taken away from the grave and um, destroyed or just completely disappearing. Um, And so, yeah, they monitored the area and it turned out it was Gabe who was taking them away. Even when they would chain things down... Don't even know how they did that, but they would chain things down at the gravesite. He'd show up with bolt cutters to (laughs) take this stuff away. Um, Yeah, seems like a really, really weird dude. Yeah. So, do we have time for the third story? You got to throw it out. (laughs) 
Jacob going diving on the Yongala. Um, yeah, so this, it was a wonderful experience. It was a terrific day. I would absolutely go and do the dive again, but it was mildly traumatic <laughs> for me to begin with. Um, this was in October of 2021. And everything that I've just told you about the Ongala, about the possible murder, I learned all of that about two nights before my Yongala dive while I was staying at Yongala Lodge, which is a hotel that turns out was once a big house on the water owned by one of the millionaires who died on the Yongala. And it was set up as a tribute to him and his family. Um, prior to checking in, I knew none of this. I didn't know about Tina, didn't know about Gabe, um, but soaked it all up while I was there staying in the lodge. And then on the morning of the dive, I was super excited to finally see this dive site that so many divers had been raving about. Um, and because I am certified as an advanced diver, excuse me, um, <laughs> the dive guide told me I could buddy up with the other advanced diver on the trip and we could just go explore independently while the dive master was leading the rest of the group in a tour. And we were both like, yep, okay, cool, no problem. The big group got in the water and then my buddy and I were the last ones to get in. The current was incredibly strong. I've never experienced a current that fierce before. And um, we had to jump in, grab the rope really, really tightly, and then use that to pull ourselves down as we were descending. Something went wrong with my buddy's mask when we were only a few metres down. And without thinking, he let go of the rope to use both of his hands to fix his mask and then gone in an instant. The current swept him away. And I just sort of watched in horror as he disappeared off into the blue. And I'm like, no. what the <laughs> fuck do I do now? I certainly wasn't going to go follow him and have the two of us drifting off into the Pacific Ocean. And so the protocol is when you lose your buddy, you swim around looking for them for 60 seconds. And then if you don't find each other in that time, you both head up to the surface. Now, considering I knew he was gone, I was thinking, do I just go straight up to the surface now? But then we also had been briefed that the current gets weaker a bit deeper down. So I thought, well, maybe he's managed to get himself down deeper and then he's going to swim back over towards the wreck. So I thought, okay, I'll try to catch up with the rest of the group over the next 60 seconds and see if maybe he shows up. And, you know, then it's probably for the best that I let the dive master know that he's gone somewhere and we might have to send out a rescue boat for him. Can you imagine how fast I was breathing and how rapidly my heart was beating at this time? Then I got closer to the group and that's when I became acutely aware that all 10 of them were wearing the exact same gear and they all had long brunette hair that was tied up into a bun just like my buddy was. And so I went from person to person. With each person, I thought, oh, that's him. That's him. And I grabbed them by the shoulder and they'd turn around and i go, nope, that's an Asian woman. And then move on to the next person, move on to the next person. That happened about seven times. And I'm thinking, shit, I've really got to get back up to the surface at this stage, what am I going to do? Finally, I saw the dive master. The dive master clocked me and went, oh, 
and pointed over to the left. And thank goodness, there was my buddy. Oh. He had managed to make it back to the group. He'd descended as quickly as he could to where the current wasn't as strong and he'd swum back over to the wreck and I'd found him and we could now proceed with our dive. But I'd used up most of my air at that <laughs> point because I was completely panicked. Um, so, yeah, it didn't take very long until I had to go back up to the surface at which point I realised that in the panic I'd managed to lose my GoPro oh. as well. No. <laughs> so Another that relic f- to be pillaged mm. from, the, from the ocean floor. Yes, archaeologists will be studying that in years to come. Um, yeah, so overcome with relief um, and then very excited to do a second dive, which went much, much, much <laughs> But still, when I think of diving on the Yongala, my heart just speeds up as I picture that guy just disappearing. Honestly, it happened so quickly that he was just gone. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be found guilty of manslaughter. (laughs) I don't follow the protocol and do the right thing. I'm going to end up like Gabe. And so that is three chapters of just the gist of Australia's Titanic, the SS Yongala. I mean, your story of those three could be the most chilling. (laughs) (laughs) I try never to think of it before I'm trying to fall asleep at night because it really does get the pulse going. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was a pretty intense experience, but worth it, I've got to say. And if you are going to go and dive the Yongala, I'd recommend doing it with Yongala Dive that are based um, out of air because they're nice and close. You only have to take a 30-minute boat ride to get you out to the location. Yeah, right. Um, and tip. It's, yeah, it is magical. Um, I'll post some links to some videos that other divers have put up on YouTube, divers who didn't lose their GoPro. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, you can check it out and it's it's wonderfully impressive and definitely something to put on the bucket list. Thank you so much for coming on board on this ride. We've really, really enjoyed having you. Where can people find you? Um, the best place is at my house. I'm there every day. <laughs> no, um, I'm on Instagram, Carla Ritchie. Um, we'll get you there. You can also follow me on Twitter, but the posts are sporadic and mostly about this fictitious uh, story I've created where I wrote the film Titanic with Jim Cameron mm-hmm. and just sharing some of our, our experiences from set. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's worth checking out. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. I feel like that should be your next podcast. <laughs> yeah, how I wrote yeah. the film. <laughs> yeah. um, is there more to come with Did Titanic Sink or have you... We, there is a potential that there's going to be a second season, uh-huh. um, whether it's going to be about going into the specifics of how Titanic sank uh-huh. or if it's going to be about another conspiracy that Paul McCartney was switched um, in the middle of the Beatles' career uh-huh. after he was killed in a car accident. Mm. That's that's something that we're looking at potentially being the next one or Avril Lavigne being switched. Oh. Yeah, well, there's good parallels between the two of them, yeah. Is yeah, Avril yeah, really, yeah. Melissa? I like to think of her as the Titanic of the land. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, on that note, we will say goodbye to you and we'll say goodbye to all the listeners for another week. Thank you all so much. Love you. Bye. <laughs> Titanic of the land. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. How does that rank in your steamboat? Stories. That's that- so good. I mean, I like. I can already see my whole night playing out. It's just <laughs> going. There's so many questions I need to to answer for myself. Such an interesting story. I'd never heard of it at all. Yeah, um, it's like one of the best kept secrets. 
There's a, there's another ship. You know the one that I thought it might have been, which is a ship that went missing off the west coast of Australia, and they mm. think it drifted for like two years. Oh wow. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's, do you know uh, the name of that one? I'll look it up and I'll send it to you. Yeah, please. People saw it um, after it disappeared. Uh-huh. Like they saw its lights and they saw its ship profile and they tried to signal it. It's still a mystery of what what happened with this ship. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. You might have to come back and tell me the story <laughs> of that, actually. All right. Thank you so much, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Listener.